Come here, fellow servant, and listen to me. I'll show you how those of superior degree are only dependents, no better than we, and all in the livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant, and all in a livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant, and all in Hello, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, so I will, uh, f- for the next few weeks, be working on some of the early writings of Benjamin Franklin. Um, I think it goes up through... 70, 70, so up to the American Revolution or so, so from his, from his youth to the American Revolution, so big uh, swath of time here, uh, good 50 years of, of some of Franklin's writings. So um, yeah, he's a really interesting guy, a lot of really profound ideas, a lot of nice philosophy. Uh, we haven't done too much American philosophy in this podcast yet. Uh, I've been meaning to do William James, but, uh, as with so many volumes in this Library of America series. It's it's you know it's going to take me a while to get to everything, um, but yeah, let's let's jump in. I've been um, you know I've I've had this on my shelf for a while, thinking I should dig my teeth into it. Um, now this volume, it's it's you know it's actually published as uh, number thirty seven A, and then there's another Franklin volume thirty seven B. I think originally it was published as volume thirty seven in the series so the 37th book they published so in the first couple years of the series and um i think it was published as one big thick book but then they reduced it to two i guess probably for commercial reasons some of those long books may be a little little hard to manage um, but uh it's fine as it is so this this volume takes us up through the american revolution and the second volume has like the autobiography and some of his revolutionary writings and uh, that kind of stuff. So, um, but so much good stuff in um, in this first collection in this series. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this first episode, just to sort of to introduce this next project uh, and jump a little bit into it. Um, so, obviously, Franklin spent uh, his youth in Boston, and he was apprenticed to his brother James Franklin, where he worked as a printer. And this is how he got his first experience in journalism, uh, law, um, publishing, um, and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, he, you know, left his brother, bandied about New England for a while. I think, or he went to Philly. Then maybe he went back to New. He went to New York, New Jersey, maybe back to Boston for a while. Um, you know, not entirely happy with his brother's treatment of him. His brother was treating him a bit like a like an indentured servant, which, which apparently, which he was, right? He was running away from his indentured when he went to Philly. Uh, but then he goes to London, right? And he gets connected to printers there and, and then returns and eventually starts his own, his career as an independent printer. So let's just uh, kind of go over that, those experiences a little bit and what writings came out of that, uh, his youth. So we're talking about Franklin as a really, really, young person here born i think in 1706 let's say let me double check here 1706 yes and so the silence do good letters were in seven were dated 1722 so uh just a teenager when he wrote the first stuff we have uh access to um and they were published in the new england current 
So we'll talk a little bit about those. They're fun to read. I, I think there's, um, you know, they're, I don't know how profound they are. I don't know how much I have to say about them, but they are, they are certainly fun to read. Uh, then we have uh, stuff he wrote as he sort of had to take over the New England Current from his brother because his brother had to go to jail for uh, basically like libel claims. And, and in those days, you know, this is before like press freedom was fully established in the colonies. It would take, I think, till later in the 18th century for that those traditions to be really established. I'm not that too... Not up on those, uh, you know, there were trials and stuff that established some degree of press freedom. And the American Revolution would, of course, codify some of that in the in the Constitution and all that. But but it was still, you could be arrested as a printer for, for like, you know, libeling the, you know, colonial officials and things. And that's sort of what James Franklin got in trouble for, like comparing that or, or talking about their connections to pirates or something like that. So... So then Ben Franklin ends up having to essentially take over as the publisher of the New England Current, at least in name, right? But he also published different articles and things. And some are interesting. Some are just, you know, you know we can just say a little bit about them, I think. There's, there's not actually uh, a whole lot until we get to the dissertation on liberty and necessity, pleasure, and pain, which I just finish an audiobook recording of which i'll be uploading to to youtube pretty shortly just because I, I noticed there wasn't one up there so i thought i would do it um this was uh 1725 when he was in london and it's kind of a little work of philosophy so um I'm like, oh, well, that's probably what i'll have the most to say about he also have his plan of conduct and i, and I think i'll stop there. i'll stop short of 100 pages at the time just because the that sort of completes things before he uh goes to philly and that's where he'll spend you know like a, you know a couple dozen years uh establishing his career as, as as a printer and a philosopher and a thinker and all that kind of stuff so and do some he does some of the things that ben franklin is of course famous for so anyways with that let's let's uh say a little bit about these so the silence do good letters written in 1722, were written as this widowed, I think kind of middle-aged, youngish, not old, like I think kind of, I guess middle-aged widow named Silence Duguid, which of course is a, a pen name, uh, of a pen name, right? So it's like Ben Franklin has this character in mind that he's writing. And of course, she would be writing with this pen name, Silence Duguid. Uh, of course, the the meaning of that name is rooted in concepts of female propriety and and you know silence women should be silent do good women should do good you know it's very puritan in a way of course that's when the, it's not her character's essentially real name right i i don't think it was intended to be so readers would have said oh this is obviously a pen name of some other woman but of course the real author was was young ben franklin uh who wanted to get published in the new england current in order to like Give some commentary and thoughts about uh, the state of affairs in in new england and society and and provide some kind of satire that's really what these these letters are they're kind of satirical and funny and th they allow him to like play with uh, some ideas he, he was having at the time i guess but his brother wouldn't let him publish so he sent in these letters anonymously um 
or he didn't, you know, as Silence Do Good, not anonymous, but he sent him in as Silence Do Good, not with his own name, I mean. Um, and and then they got published and they got printed and he wrote 14 of them. And, um, and yeah, wow, they're a lot of fun. Like, uh, um, what do we got here? So the first one just introduces herself. It would, I mostly get a lot look, reading these again, how, like... How press the press in those days was doing a lot more. It wasn't just here's the news of the day, right? With a, an opinion piece. It seems there's a lot more um, commentary and community discussion and things like that. It was more like a forum, right? Where people would. And even when I was reading like the things like North China Herald and newspapers like that, there's just a lot more just people submitting their thoughts about stuff. Um, and of course, publishers always wanted stuff to print. And I don't really get the sense newspapers do that anymore. Um, they still have their role, I suppose. But you also get the sense it's, it's like not it's not like so much propaganda like you get in newspapers today. It's a, a little bit freer. I mean, you didn't have the free press environment, but what was going on in the press seemed a lot, a lot more frontierish. I guess that's the thing. It was a marchland of 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 the press. Um. Anyways, silence do good. Um. So it's a widow um, born on a ship to America. So the the character he's created for is kind of a lot of fun here. So she's sort of of England, as so many people in New England were, um, having their roots there. But she was literally born on the ship to America. So she's fully of America, right? Um, and her father died right immediately after. So she's also like a, a orphan of sorts. I guess she stole her mother, but... Uh, orphaned by her father in America. So she's very much, uh, I mean, the, the symbolism here, I think is pretty clear. It's like, she is a hundred percent American. There's no connection to, to the homeland, I guess, uh, in the sense of at least through her father's side, um, which is how most new Englanders would have saw their kind of genealogical connections that mattered was through their father. Later on, her mother died too. So she is sort of orphaned. She presents herself as living like a really more normal life. Um, but says, I'm just going to introduce myself to the people through this newspaper, the New England Current. We'll write every two weeks a different letter. And that's what Silence Do Good, Ben Franklin, does. Uh, and different letters will tell different parts of her story. So, for instance, the second letter talks about her marriage. Um, and and kind of self-deprecating and, and in the letter, like saying how, like, oh, my husband married me after he failed at like attracting hot women essentially accepting sounds too good as like the best he could do they have uh two girls one boy everything's very traditional and and standard and then a very standard and traditional and boring kind of um widowhood but she she does list her values um in the second letter she goes um I shall conclude this with my own character, which one would think I should be best able to give. Know then that I am an enemy to vice, a friend to virtue. I am one of intensive, extensive charity and a great forgiver of private injuries, a hearty lover of the clergy and of all men and a mortal enemy to arbitrary government and unlimited power. So there's some kind of more high brown political philosophy at work here in the, in the subtext of Silence Too Good. Um, so you can tell Ben Franklin wants to say some things, but he, he's only able to do it through this through this little trick on his on his brother. And I, I wonder, like, maybe 
what happened when James Franklin like figured out I should maybe pick up a biography of Franklin to to get more. I'm sure all of this has been sort of worked out. So uh, some of um, what are these letters about? I mean, they're they're on various topics. Each one does sort of have a theme, I suppose. Like one is about learning and and what's proper education and idleness in education and all these things but but always from the perspective perspective of a, like a mother and a, and a woman but um an inter- incredibly well educated one um which tells us that Ben franklin was was at this point incredibly well educated of course being a printer was a great way to get an education like you're reading all day right and when you're studying print type or whatever you're reading those books and knowing them quite well quite intimately um, some of these are about like women and, and women's status. In fact, there's a he even makes up like responses to Mrs. Duguid that kind of challenge her right to like write, and he like defends sounds good to you know right to write these. There's like a little bit of a, a feminist argument there about like the right of women to express themselves publicly, even though it turns out just a man doing this, but. Um, that's not how the readers at the time would have read them. Um, what else? She talks about her own pride. She writes, uh, but also like the pride of New England's culture. I, like overconsumption is something that's on her mind. Uh, the kind of the folly of clothing, kind of as New England's moving from this puritanical religious society to a more commercial society. There's uh, satire about that. He's making fun of like the clothing a little bit uh quote i cannot dismiss the subject without some observation on a particular fashion now reigning among my own sex the most immodest and inconvenient of any of the art of woman has invented namely that of hoop petticoats by these they are incommoded to the general and particular calling and therefore cannot answer the ends of either necessity or ornamental apparel these monstrously topsy-turvy mortar pieces are neither fit for the church, the hall, or the kitchen, or any number of them would be well-mounted on Noodle Island. They would look more like engines of war from bombarding the town than ornaments of the fair sex, end quote. Um, and of course, you can imagine this is just Ben Franklin watching the changing fashions as he's growing up and, and writing this little essay. Remember, he's at like, he's like, what is he, 15, 16 writing this. It's, it's, pretty, um, it's pretty wild. Uh, it's got a bunch on poetry, so you can tell he was really uh, digging a, a, a kind of a thought on on, a, on poetry. He's been reading a lot of that and, and used silence too good to give commentary on different poems. Uh, he does talk about politics and freedom of speech in particular. Um, religious, religious freedom is is a topic that sounds do good do good uh defends here um um yeah i don't know what more to say about these they're fun uh a lot of different um just social comment here i suppose but i i i would have to i have to mention this one where he talks about drinking um he she uh sounds do good talks about drinking uh and the vice of drunkenness um this is great. Uh, I would in this letter improve the little observation I have made on the vice of drunkenness. The better to reclaim the good fellows who usually pay the devotions of the evening to Bacchus. I doubt not, but moderate drinking has been improved for the diffusion of knowledge among the ingenious parts of mankind who want the talent of a ready utterance. 
in order to discover the conceptions of their minds in an entertaining and intelligible manner. Tis true, drinking does not improve our faculties, but it enables us to use them. And therefore, I conclude that much study and experience, a little liquor, are of absolute necessity for some tempers in order to make them accomplish orators. That's pretty good stuff there. <laughs> um, but, you know, obviously there's a commentary on the, the bad effects of drinking too, but, you know, Ben Franklin here can't stop himself from, from saying a few good words for, for uh, drunkenness. Uh, a wonderful mind, actually, um, in his, just his like liberal attitude towards lifestyles and perspectives and opinions. It's, I think, one of one thing you get away when you read this is there's not the moralism and judgmentalism you get in a lot of, I guess, New England writing from the from the colonial period. So, anyways, eventually he, um, J J him James James Franklin finds out that Ben Franklin was authoring these, and I guess he shut it down at that point. Um, and it's about this time too that he leaves his apprenticeship with for. Um, and then goes off to, to, to London or whatever. But um, but there is a period of time where he essentially takes over the New England Current. I don't know all the details of this, but it has to do with uh, James uh, Franklin accusing um, or suggesting in one of his, some of the articles or publications of the New England Current that some of the officials in New England were essentially uh, working alongside pirates which probably was pretty true at the time. This is, of course, this is the golden age of piracy. We're still in the golden age of piracy in 1722, the tail end of it, right? But it, there's, it's still that, what's that golden age of piracy? Like the 1710s and 1720s? By the end of 1720s, it was kind of shut down and suppressed, but it's still that golden age. And New England was part of that. That was a port of call for pirates. So not, probably not entirely wrong in uh, his opinion. But anyway, he ends up in jail for that and he's not allowed to publish. So he has to publish under Ben Franklin's name. And and so Ben Franklin does publish different articles in this uh, in this role. Uh, one is a defense of James Franklin. So kind of a defense of free freedom of speech. That defense being made largely on the grounds of, of English liberties um, and English law, obviously, because that's the law of the land. Uh, a really fun little article here on the ti on titles of honor, which I enjoyed reading. I, when I read this, I thought, oh, he's going to be against titles of honor because I'm thinking aristocracy. But he's not talking about like a, a natural aristocracy so much, but rather earned aristocracy. He's talking about like in a democratic society, do titles of any sort have any place, right? Um, like Mr. or Sir or Doctor or Esquire, these kinds of title professional titles right so it's not just about the titles of of nobility it's not really a major issue in america at the time but he's thinking more of these others and he and he says like in the bible there's no titles of honor he says in old times there's no disrespect for men or women to be called by their own names adam was never called master adam we never read of noah esquire or lot knights or baronet or the right honorable abraham viscount Mesopotamia, Baron of Karen, no, no, they were plain men, honest country graziers that took care of their families and their flocks. Moses was a great prophet and Aaron, a priest of the Lord, but we never read of Reverend Moses. So it's, it's, he's making a, a claim here that maybe 
in a biblical sense, if we're, if we're basing our society on biblical laws, we don't need those, right? In a Calvinist logic, right, where you try to go back to a, a, a early, like the apostles and what their life was like as your model for your church. But anyways, the whole thing is presented as like the a club's meeting notes, like the, the notes of a club, um, some kind of social club of, of Boston, which I, I think it's all in his imagination or he's just making it up. But they had this meeting and they talked about this and it becomes an article. Um, uh, what else do we got here? A few others. I'm not going to mention all of them. Um, but I, I do want to jump to, I guess I, I'll end up with this, is the dissertation on liberty and necessity, pain and pleasure and pain, uh, written in London in 1725. So he fled his brother. Um, let me see here. Oh, I forgot one piece. Rules for the New England Current. Let me do that. Talk about that first quick. Something he published in the New England Current was the rules for the New England Current, which I don't know if he's being kind of satirical, but uh, I can't tell. Um, I think he might be, must be. But maybe he's just trying to protect its uh, reputation um, during a time of scandal. But he, he makes, is it like five or six rules? One is um, like, be kind to religion and don't libel people are like the first rules, which of course is what they were being accused of. Then be kind to government, avoid scandalous authors, avoid sermons, because I guess maybe preachers are trouble. <laughs> and then protect the canvas club, which is like a local rich person's gang of club, um, or maybe the readers, a lot of the readers are in that club, whatever. But the whole thing is, is kind of sarcastic. It's like of a, it's like if a New York Times came with an article today saying like the rules of the New York Times is like never question the 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 president or his officials. Uh, Always reprint the speeches without any commentary. Uh, don't, you know, uh, don't publish anything like the uh, the Pentagon Papers. <laughs> uh, obviously, that's not the function of of newspapers, right? So maybe he's just trying to expose the how ridiculous it is to ask a newspaper to to never libel, never never accuse uh, people in authority of of Ill, of ill doing. I just have to mention that. But anyways, uh, so I think it's September 23, he breaks for New York. He breaks his indentureship and, and, um, and then goes to New York and then from there to Philly and then kind of flips around the region for a while, mostly like New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, that area. Thinks about starting his own printing shop, but in 1725 arrives in London and ends up finding work in Samuel Palmer's print shop. Um, so... While he's working at this print shop, uh, he sets the type for William Wollaston's A Religion of Nature Delineated. And this is essentially kind of an effort at a mathematical um, discussion or like a, he says, is like this is as good as Euclid, a discussion of rights and wrongs. Like if you understand the foundational way the universe works, then you'll know if an action is right or wrong. It's kind of like saying we can understand kind of scientifically and mathematically good moral actions. Uh, at least that's what I find. I never read it, but that's what I was able to find looking online about this work. Um, but anyways, of course, this is a big problem in Calvinist theology and in, in, in general. And so it's affecting the religious discourse in England and America is um, 
things like total depravity and the omnipotence of God. And if God's omnipotent and good, you know, you got the problem of evil right away, which we've talked about many times on this podcast in different contexts. But uh, something Phil Dick was really obsessed with, of course. But um, you got the problem of evil, but you also have the problem of free will, right? And so, you know, when I did Neil Stevenson's The Broke Cycle, that issue came up there too, right? We're in a mechanistic universe, so where's the space for free will? This was the debate between characters and then including uh, fictional depictions of real people like Leibniz. They were struggling with this. And is the universe like good? If, if, like, if you remember Leibniz's response to the problem of evil was this is the best possible world. I don't know if Ben Franklin by this point had read Leibniz, but he certainly could have read Leibniz. You know, he said this is, it's not that like e- evil exists because a better world is simply not possible, right? So God would create the best possible world and that therefore we must live in the best possible world and any evil is is the best it comes from the fact that this universe is the best that can be it can't be any better right that, that's a adequate response I think to the problem of evil if not us entirely um, convincing I think it's it's adequate if you if you accept that God is all powerful omniscient all that and, and I'm not an expert on this, but you know, I, my, I think that's how it is. That's logically how it works in my head. So, and and this guy, Wolf Stone, Stone, is trying to also say, well, there's moral right and wrong, and we can expose it mathematically. We can know if, you know, almost like a utilitarian logic. In any, but obviously, it's coming from a Christian perspective because he was a, a preacher, uh, a clergyman in the Church of England. Um, anyways. Um, so Ben Franklin then, after setting the type for this, he's like, this is no good. I'm going to write my own response. So he's like, whatever, 17. And he writes this little pamphlet. It's just, uh, I read, I just read it. I just did an audiobook version of this that I'll post soon. It's only 35 minutes long. And that includes me introducing it. So it's not very long, but it's, the argument has kind of three parts, I guess. It's broken officially into two, but I think there's actually like a third that's sort of, fit in there the first part argues basically if god is all powerful and all good and all knowing and all that all the standard definitions of god he says like everyone agrees with this so we'll just take it for granted then everything in the universe must that happens must be for good so there can't be evil he basically says there's no evil in the universe there can't be because if there is that means satan is more powerful than god which doesn't make sense if god is all powerful and since he's good, he wouldn't. He, it's like his solution to the problem of evil too, by just saying the stuff's not evil. It's not can't be evil because it's God's will. We just maybe don't understand it or whatever. But that's the first part of the argument. And then so he also says there's essentially no free will, as an extension, because that's that's a standard kind of Calvinist idea, I suppose. That free will is doesn't really exist, right? Everything's sort of predetermined, predestined, all that. Um, but since there's no free will, there's no merit or demerit, right? So this is, this is, I think, as people make have the free will debate now, right? Like the stuff you see in Ted Chang's writings, the free will debate, you know, you have the problem of like, well, then how do you punish people for their deeds if there's no choice, if free will doesn't exist at a, like a biochemical level? If everything we do is predetermined, how can you accuse someone of murder? 
Well, of course, one response is, well, they may not have a day-to-day choice, but you can cultivate habits, right? Or at a moment, you don't have a choice. Things have been decided in your brain before you do it, but you could cultivate better habits, right? There's a reason most of us don't murder people. It's because we've trained ourselves not to get through life not doing that. Or maybe we, you know, you know, something like that, right? Like we can change behavior by behaving better. It's kind of like an Aristotelian kind of virtue ethic kind of idea, I guess. Um, but Ben Franklin here just says there's no merit or demerit in creatures. He uses the word creatures, you know, people who are created, things that were created, which is fine, I guess. Logically, it's not inconsistent. Now, Ben Franklin did sort of reject this essay later in his life, saying, like, it's nonsense. But I don't know. I think there's some value in reading it. That's why I recorded it anyways. Now, the next section is called Of Pleasure and Pain. Now, here's where the argument, I think, gets a little, gets a little silly. But I mean, it's not totally illogical, but he basically says pleasure and pain in a person, in an individual, in a creature is essentially equal. So, for instance, if I'm hungry, I have a certain uneasy. He, he defines this thing called uneasiness, which is, I guess, our misery, whatever our misery is. Right. And so if I'm hungry and. I have a certain set amount of uneasiness based on my hunger. And then when I eat, I get pleasure, but that pleasure is just canceling out in equal amount the, the uneasiness. And if I eat too much, I suppose he doesn't go this far into like an Epicurean way. But if I, I guess if I eat more, then I'll have like a new source of uneasiness, which would be like being too full, right? Bloated or, or whatever. And then that would be resolved by fasting for six hours or something until my stomach settles and I work off those calories. Um, or if I'm anxious about something, that will be resolved by however that is that is resolved in the future. So I don't quite buy this particular argument. I think it's weaker than the other. Uh, it doesn't have the solid foundations. Uh, he, now, he, where he kind of runs into problems, he's like, okay, yeah, there's miserable people there, but you can't know how miserable they really are. Like, you see a starving guy on the street, it's like, maybe they're happy starving. I mean, Ben Franklin basically says that much. He says, like, maybe they're happy, content in their life. It's like, if you see a mouse in a trap dying, they're like, maybe he likes being in the trap. It's, who's you to say that they're feeling uh, an excess of pain <laughs> over pleasure? So it's, it gets kind of silly that way. I, I don't quite buy this part of it, um, but I think he. I think this ties to the first part of the argument in a way because he wants to show the universe is basically good, and if there's an excess of suffering, you're back to the problem of evil issue. But if you can just dance around it with this mathematical game of saying, well, yeah, there's suffering, but it's always equaled out by pleasure, and then it's kind of neutral. But but he also says at one point. How, we're not any different from a rock then in terms of our sensations. We have sensations, pleasure and pain, but they balance out. So it's like null. But so is a rock. A rock has no pleasure, no pain, and also equals zero. So we're essentially in that sense of the balance of the universe in terms of pain and pleasure equal to a rock. I just don't buy it. I mean, it's, he even says at some point, like, if you're dying and suffering, your death will be 
instantly relieve all that suffering, that uneasiness that you're feeling, and you'll be balanced at the end of your life. Um, I don't know how any observation of the actual universe, how it works, fits this, but but it seems to be almost necessary, or else you do have you return to the problem of of evil. If 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 pain outnumbers pleasure, then you got to go back to that first argument and say, how is that a good universe? You can do what Leibniz does, but that's not what Franklin's trying to do here. So then he gets kind of a third argument where he talks about the existence of the soul and the permanence of the soul after death, which seems connected to this idea of pain and pleasure. That's where he puts it in the text. But it's almost like an add-on, an added-on idea. It's, it all, it's all after the fifth and final proposition of part two. Um, I think it's kind of a response to his... He's trying to pr- stop a response about about um, the eternal nature of the soul being some way of kind of continuing. Like the, the scales can't really balance because you have an eternal soul. And he's saying, trying to say something about the soul here. I'm not entirely clear on all of it, but it's he's making some argument about the immaterial in a mortal soul and how that's not relevant to pain and pleasure like what it only matter i mean in a sense it makes sense right pain and pleasure only matter in this world the soul doesn't feel either unless it's in hell i guess but he doesn't bring up hell here um he even brings up possible possibility of reincarnation he says like it might be our soul goes into another body but that's not going to matter for our pleasure and pain he's not really that interested in the afterlife but he can't ignore the possibility of an immortal soul you know coming from such a christian context and then we have, um, he just sums up the argument. Um, and that's it. It's, it's, it's really fun. I, I have really no complaint. I had a lot of fun reading it, but it's, um, yeah, check it out. I really have nothing more to say. Also here, before, in, he wrote in London his plan of conduct, which is uh, just advice. Uh, where he says, where he, actually it's self-advice. Where he says, like, this is how I'm going to live my life. And I'll read it. It's four points. One, one, it is necessary for me to be extremely frugal for some time until I've paid what I owe. Two, to endeavor to speak truth in every insistence, to give nobody expectations that are not likely to be answered, but aim at sincerity in every word and action, the most amiable excellence to a rational mind. Three, to apply myself industriously to whatever business I take in hand, not divert my mind from business by any foolish project of growing suddenly rich, for industry and patience are the surest means of plenty. Four, I resolve to speak ill of no man whatever, not even in a matter of truth, but rather by some means excuse of faults. I here charge upon others, and upon proper occasions speak all the good I know of everybody. End quote. Not bad advice. It's, it's stuff maybe if you be like, Good Richard's Almanac, you're not, it's not surprising. But for a young man to kind of make these resolutions, don't speak ill of people. Be industrious. Save money. Speak truth. Yeah. Generally good advice for people, I think. But, uh, you know, my feelings on work are a little more complex than that. But when you're doing something, try to do it right. I guess that's not bad advice. So I guess that's it. That's my introduction to um, to this project on on Ben Franklin's writings. If I have time before the summer, I'll I'll, I'll pick up the second volume, which has like Good Richards, 
almanac and the autobiography and all that, but um, but maybe not. I'm thinking of taking a break this summer because I'm going to go to Wisconsin, but we'll see. So for the next one, I will. Where? How far should I go? Maybe to maybe a decade. We'll do a good decade of of no, maybe not a whole decade. Maybe five years. We'll go up through. 1732 or 1733 maybe about that time so mostly this is all going to be his philadelphia writings so i haven't read it yet i'm looking forward to it though so anyways that's going to be it for now hope you enjoy this series on ben franklin i know there's a lot of you out there who probably know much more about him and his writings than i do so please leave your comments and thoughts and correct me when i'm wrong um and and jump into the debate i'll i'll really enjoy it thanks so much for listening and i will see you next time she craves so we laugh at the great world it's fools and it's knaves for we are all servants but they are all slaves and all in a livery tis here fellow servant and there fellow servant and all in a livery Dear fellow servant and their fellow servant and all in a